Hey, welcome back to Jazz United. This is Nate Chenan, Editorial Director at WBGO. Greg Bryant here as well, host of Jazz After Hours on member-supported WBGO. Jazz United is a podcast about music and about the conversation around the music. And speaking of, of conversations, um, maybe you joined us recently um, with our most recent episode about producer Jay Dilla. Um, we want to welcome you in any case. You're, you're certainly encouraged to check out our archives, see what we've been up to. But if you want to just start here and, and move forward, that's cool too. Uh, the main <laughs> thing is you're here with us now and we've, we've got some cool stuff to talk about this week. We sure do. Man, a doozy. Brand new release, uh, or should I say newly unearthed material from uh, one of the genre's uh, giants, Cecil Taylor. Uh, it's called The Return Concert. Uh, this captures the complete evening of November 4th, 1973 at Town Hall. We're going to be talking about Cecil Taylor today and this mammoth new release. Um, my goodness, man, you, you certainly uh, put the challenge out, Nate. I've been doing some intense uh, listening <laughs> shedding for this episode. Yeah, this is this is one of those brace yourself releases. It is it is not for half stepping this no. this album. Um, but I say that not as a you know not as a, a cautionary warning. It's more like like look this this is the the kind of of experience that rewards engagement. You know, the more you put in, the more you get out. Expertly uh, delivered, Nate. I like that. I like that. And in the case of the gentleman we're talking about today, that's what he demanded. Um, I find myself listening um, with almost the intensity of a band member. I mean, mm. it's 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 just so um, engaging in a way that's so different because the way that he plays and Cecil Taylor's vocabulary, which we'll talk about some, I'm sure, has a multitude of angles and and you'll you'll blink and miss something. You really have to be an active listener to engage this material, which really begs the question. Uh, I have some thoughts about it, but I want to ask you, you love the avant-garde. How do you listen to it and how did you train yourself to really mm. appreciate uh, the freer side of the music? Wow. Wow. Just Greg, just coming in here, dropping the, the bombs right away. Um, so here's what I'm going to do. <laughs> okay. In order to give myself a you moment. You cannot punt. You cannot punt. I'm not punting. Yeah. I'm not punting. Uh, uh, All right. I'm going to get do run a little play action here um, and, okay. and say that I, I, I would like to fully engage with your, your question and also uh, hear your thoughts on the matter. But before I do, in the spirit of this incredible new body of work. Um, why don't we um, drop the needle on, you know, a, a minute or two of, of this uh, newly unearthed material, um, an 88-minute long unbroken concert performance, um, which bears the title Autumn Slash Parade. Um, and we're just going to pick a, a, a cool moment from within that storm. Um, and so as you're listening understand that this is just a you know a, a tiny slice of this experience but hopefully uh, you get something out of it regardless so here we go mm-hmm. 
Autumn Parade, an 88-minute um, cocktail piece or suite, whatever you would like to call it, uh, unbroken here for the first time on the return concert release with Cerrone on bass, Jimmy Lyons on alto saxophone, uh, Andrew Cyril on the drum set, and then, of course, the inimitable Cecil Taylor on uh, piano, or uh, are those 88 drums, Nate? Well, I was just going to say, how funny is it that this is an 88-minute long track, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, people talk all the time about, you know, Cecil Taylor as an improviser. Um, Something something in me feels like that 88 minutes is like weirdly um, precise, (laughs) you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, And you asked about... um, preparation or, or, um, you know, how I got my, my mind, um, ready for this. And, and the short answer is, um, in a very haphazard fashion. And in fact, Mm -hmm. my first exposure to Cecil Taylor truly, um, happened on the page simultaneously, um, with, with, you know, my listening. And by that, I mean, I was reading Valerie Wilmer's incredible book, um, as serious as your life. Um, early in my, you know, my jazz journey as a as a listener, and I had heard a little bit of Cecil, but hadn't really um, deeply engaged with it. And and so reading Valerie Wilmer, reading her profile of him, reading the man's words, um, was was very helpful as a way in. But I have to take issue with one thing. There's a famous uh, metaphor that she uses when she talks about Cecil. And it's, it's so um, influential that it comes up almost, you know, every time people talk about him, this idea that Cecil Taylor's relationship with the piano was like, you know, they weren't piano keys. They were 88 tuned drums. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, It's a very evocative uh, idea, but I think it's a little misleading actually. Hmm. Um, There's no question that, that, there's a you know an idea of like the autonomy of each of each key that's helpful he's certainly a percussive pianist and you you hear that on this concert but it's not as if he approached the piano like a like a drummer you know what i mean um i think that that metaphor actually strips some of the incredible touch that cecil taylor had as a pianist and some of the incredible nuance that he had as a kind of sound painter or, you know, and, and as a literal and figurative poet. Um, and so, you know, I, I just want to get away from this idea of, of like the instrument as, um, as something that he is attacking. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because in my experience, um, seeing Cecil, um, I, it, it was just as likely that you would see him coaxing sounds from the instrument as opposed to banging them out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just, that's a little, a, a little pet peeve of mine um, just to, to start out here. Um, I wonder what you think of that. Well, I, I may get under your skin a little bit. Um, I, I feel like what you're saying with regards uh, to touch is spot on. Um, but I'd have to say that when Cecil Taylor really clicked for me, um, not to get too far away from the album we're discussing, but in his duos with Max Roach Mm -hmm. and being that Max, in my opinion, was the perfect duo partner for Cecil. 
not just because of the forward propulsion that Max had, but because Max was so at home playing with other percussion players. Right. And in a player right. like Cecil Taylor, who accentuates not only harmony and dissonance in a very um, unique um, and one-of-a-kind way, but I feel like he focuses us on the fact that the piano is indeed rhythm, is indeed about um, putting timbres together that would rival um, any rhythm made. He, he doesn't almost need Andrew Surreal on this recording. And as careful, we talk about it, now. well, I, it's not <laughs> it's not in saying that Mr. Surreal isn't a legend on his no, own. I know. I know. But I would I would I would argue that the gem of this set is probably the solo piano piece, Spring mm. of Two Blue Jays. Um, I think critics of the avant garde have something when they say sometimes they can't always separate um, the members of the whole because the energy force is flowing all at once or careening all together. There isn't necessarily the contrast that, say, maybe uh, they would appreciate with someone backing a soloist or uh, backing a rhythm section player. But mm -hmm. when we think about Cecil, I think that his pure, transformative, trance-like energy is yeah. made plain and made... Um, um, cosmopolitan almost when we think of him as a rhythm agent not just a harmonic uh, personality oh, yeah no yeah, absolutely correct um rhythm is fundamental um because i think um and this this is a funny thing right because um in some of the criticism of cecil taylor that that was more um influential Mm -hmm. Coming from the likes of Stanley Crouch, there was a kind of criticism that 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 implied that um, oh, th this is a kind of European abstraction or or something, and it's it's getting away from a you know the the African centered um, ideal of of jazz. And the thing is, Cecil Taylor's whole conception feels deeply um, African diasporic, right? I mean, it's. Um, it's so fundamental and it, that's not to say that there's no um, Eurocentrism in it. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of classical methodology is, is in Cecil Taylor's music clearly. Um, but there's a lot of Ellington, right. Um, and then oh, yeah. there's like this, there's this, this thing that is, is beyond idiom, you know, it's sort of outside of, of quote unquote jazz. Um, but it is, it's so deeply connected to the, the rhythmic pulses that we associate with, you know, with the diaspora. Hey there, Jazz United listeners. This is Greg Bryant here. Wanted to drop a dime on you for something that uh, you might really dig and appreciate. Uh, a new spinoff podcast uh, called Let Me Tell You About It. It's been a column heretofore, but now it's in a podcast form. Uh, it's an interview series uh, where I talk to different members of the creative uh, Black American music community, uh, generally about uh, the human experience. And we use that as a springboard uh, to talk about their music and what they're up to. So if you want to check it out, it opens February 15th on all your podcast services. It's called Let Me Tell You About It. 
Thanks so much for the support. Back to Jazz United. Maybe we should back up for a second um, okay. and talk about, like, what is this thing? What is mm-hmm. what is this new recording? Um, yeah. How about a little bit of historical context? Um, because I think that anyone who has engaged with Cecil has engaged with Cecil in the 60s, right? That's kind of where you start. Yeah. Late, fif- late 50s, early 60s, um, albums like Jazz Advance and Unit Structures. Um, you know, that's really when it, when all of the concepts begin to lock into place. Mm-hmm. Um, this album comes after a, a hiatus yeah. um, during which uh, Cecil was focused on teaching. Um, he was at Antioch College and the University of Wisconsin, um, and he was teaching composition. Um, and so, you know, you, you think about how fast everything was moving uh, on the scene a five-year absence, you know, at the turn of the 1970s, you know, late 60s into into early 70s, is is you know that's a pretty major absence, um, and so, you know, what can you say about the idea of of a public return um, that this signals? Well, you have to clear the air, um, and I don't want to limit this uh, autumn parade. Uh, the new song we're hearing that led the concert to that of a, a palate cleanser. But but you have to reestablish your connection with the audience. And he does that in the first three minutes of the piece. It's kind of, hey, how are you guys? It's nice to be in the same space with you again. Remember me? I'm Cecil Taylor. And after about three minutes of that, we are off to the races. And then maybe 10 minutes after that, if we're truly engaged we're in the vehicle with mm-hmm. the band. And then 10 minutes after that, somehow the band, along with the listeners, are the vehicle. It's very transformative what he's able to do. Um, I will say again, I think that the original issue of the album probably yields the most gold or, or the most diamonds. But in listening to Autumn Parade, I think this is my fourth or fifth time going through it, I find myself enraptured by it more and more. And that simple, well, not simple, um, the, the, the magnificence of Cecil's endurance and energy um, outlasts, I feel, all of his sidemen. Uh, yeah. So much so that you hear them towards the end of the piece, kind of one by one, you know, taking a break, dropping out. Mm. But Cecil is still carrying <laughs> right. the momentum yes. of yes. this piece, um, which by the end, it's almost like, OK, there isn't a neat bow on it. There's not a button. You know, mm-hmm. the trance is over. He stops playing. So it took 88 minutes to really get there and reacquaint uh, those in the room with um what he was about and yeah. it's a ride, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you mentioned, um, you know, material that, that was released. And so let me unpack that a little bit. This concert was, you know, it was, it was a sprawling affair. That first performance, as we've said, it's an uninterrupted, you know, almost hour and a half, um, unbroken thing. And so how do you go about releasing that in that era? when you know your 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 choice was to 
to spread it out over, you know, multiple sides of an LP with fade outs. And it really, if you spend time with this music, you, you quickly understand that there's not a natural place to interrupt this flow. So it was kind of an unreleasable artifact in that era, right? Whereas the second half of the concert, which followed an intermission and bore a dedication in the program to Ben Webster, interestingly enough, um, it, it actually parsed into, you know, a solo piece that, that runs a little over 16 minutes and then a quartet section that runs about 22 minutes. Those are perfect dimensions to fit on an LP. That's right. And so it, it was released as a, as an album titled spring of two blue Jays. Um, and it, it came out on, uh, Cecil's own label, um, and we've talked quite a bit on, on this show about, you know, artist run labels and, and, you know, independence. Um, and this is, you know, an example of that Cecil, Cecil put this out. Um, and I, I just want to pause here and note that when this came out, I think 2000 copies that's right. We're pressed. That's right. So, mm-hmm. so if you happen to, to, you know, be flipping through a stack, uh, at a, mm-hmm. at a record store and you see, an OG copy of Spring of Two Blue Jays. Cop that. Cop that hold sucker. It, hold it close. So it was, it was released on Unit Core Records um, in 1974. And, you know, many years later, uh, Gary Giddens did a thing in his column, Weatherbird, where he picked an album from every year. It was basically from 1945 all the way up to what was then the present. And so every year an emblematic album that, that is, you know, just the best, mm-hmm. the best of that year. And he, for 1973, he picked spring of two blue Jays. Um, and Greg, if you, if you'll indulge me, sure. Um, I want to read a, a little about a little of what he says about this album. Cecil Taylor's two magnificent blue note albums of 1966 were followed by a silence of nearly seven years, except for his collaboration with the Jazz Composers Association and European concerts that weren't issued here until much later. Then, within a year, he released Indent, a solo recital from Antioch, where he had been teaching, and the second set of a town hall concert dedicated to Ben Webster. The latter has two sections— an epic, if largely romantic, piano solo, which offers an improvisational coherence his earlier work only hints at, and a meditative quartet variation that captures him in transition before the darker, deeper textures that followed when he launched his sextet. This was bassist Cyrone's first recording with him and drummer Andrew Cyril's last. Mm. Both are fully committed, as is Taylor's most frequent collaborator, Jimmy Lyons, whose alto mirrors every pianistic conceit. Hmm. Um, so, Greg, did Gary Giddens drop a bar or what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he definitely uh, captured um, the spirit that that some of the spirit that I heard. Um, that part one that he speaks about, you know, the romanticism. Um, I tend to focus on some of the influence, uh, making some mm-hmm. points of um, interest in my listening. Um, I don't know in Boston if Jackie Byard and Cecil Taylor hung out, but it sounds like they did in the best way. Um, I hear Jackie Byard in Cecil Taylor. I also hear some of where Jason Moran comes from in oh, Cecil for sure. Taylor. 
yeah. uh, in this given piece. And I, I want to go to music right here. A little touch of spring of two blue jays around the seven minute mark. Um, there's a statement here. And speaking of who we spoke about last episode, Jay Dilla, there's a flipping oh, of that statement yeah, that we're right. going to check out right here if we can. This is a piece of Spring of Two Blue Jays, part one, Cecil Taylor solo piano. section from the solo piano performance from Spring of Two Blue Jays. This, of course, from the Town Hall Concert, 1973. And Greg, um, that is such an astute observation about the looping. Um, there's also this, this feeling that I get of, um, you know, people talk about theme and variations mm -hmm. uh, in, in jazz improvisation. Typically, when we talk about that, we refer to a melody and an improvisation on that melody. Um, in this case, it's more like, um, you know, I, I feel I see this as theme and variations, but in a more permutative form, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 taking this cell and it's just reworking and reworking and and you know kneading it like dough right mm -hmm. um and and he was a master obviously at, at that process i want to return to to this idea of of the ben webster dedication this is november 4th this concert and ben webster had died the previous month mm -hmm. um and so you know as we talk about cecil taylor's relationship to the tradition um I think it's really, it's worth reflecting on that for a second. You know, this, this yeah, idea of like, we've lost one of our village elders. Um, and I'm going to, you know, dedicate this second half of my comeback concert to an acknowledgement, um, mm -hmm. almost like a home going, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that's a really beautiful thing. And it's something that we don't, we don't instinctively think about when we think about Cecil. That's right. That's right. Yeah, man. He was a student of, of Ellington um, and Ben Webster, of course, being one of the lead voices at one period in that band. But something that I've focused on in years, um, you know, recently, Ben Webster speaking about knowing the lyrics and knowing the melody to all of these beautiful improvisations mm -hmm. um, that he would take us through. And you hear in Spring of Two Blue Jays, part one, as you said, this written material that Cecil clearly has developed and in that tradition, also, as you've pointed out, um, the African-American tradition um, of orators and artists who will prepare a given text or a given premise, and then they expound on that. And then there's this other prepared piece that they explain and expound on. I think about Hendrix at Woodstock, the Star Spangled Banner. Mm -hmm. um, that's yeah. in the tradition of what Cecil is doing, in my opinion, with this piece, but, but connecting it to your original point, um, he's trying to inhabit some of the space uh, that Ben Webster led the way with. And there's a lyricism here for sure. 
Yeah. You know, when, um, you know, the incomparable Aretha Franklin died in 2018, like everyone in my line of work, I, I wrote something. Um, and the piece that I wrote had to do with her, um, her both belonging and not belonging to the jazz fold, you know, but fundamentally how important jazz was to her foundation. <clears throat> and I also wrote about how jazz perceived her, how the jazz world responded to Aretha. And one of the, one of the uh, sources that I was um, less expecting to see was Cecil. Mm. Um, he talked about, and it was right around this time, you know, this era um, when he was talking about her, he listened a lot to Aretha Franklin. And he, he said that she helped him become a better piano player. Wow. Listening to her, listening to how she um, articulated as a singer helped mm. him as a pianist. And, and I think, you know, I mean, I don't think it's a stretch to, <laughs> to apply that logic, you know? No, it, not it at all. It has to do with a clarity of intonation Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and then like immense control. And if you, if you have immense control, then you are able to have complete abandon, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you understand where Cecil's coming from, you know, um, and this idea that, um, there's just nothing arbitrary in it. You know, right. and, which is which is tricky. It's it's kind of right. like the conversation that you might have, um, you know, with like a younger cousin or something. If you take them to a modern art museum and mm-hmm. stand in front of a Jackson Pollock painting and, mm-hmm. you know, well. What do you think of that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and the surface impression is yeah. is one of of chaos and abandon. But then the the more you study the closer you look at the canvas, the more you look at the at, at what preceded it and what followed, you begin to understand, oh, there's, a, there's an extreme rigorous methodology at work here. And mm-hmm. it's just that I, I, you know, on first blush, I'm not completely understanding how that methodology is applied. Right, right. It, it's a personal language, uh, avant and free and, and, and new music. Um, so much so that when we love it, um, the, the tendency I have sometimes is to be cagey around it. I don't want people poking and prodding it. It's very personal (laughs) to me, you know, but it's not a myopic language at all. And just what you said, the fact that Cecil's ears and his heart were big enough to embrace the complete black American music experience. I've talked to some old timers that say, yeah, man, Cecil would hang at Bradley's. He would hang at the Vanguard. You'd yeah. see him out, you know, doing his thing in his own personal style and swagger. But he was always checking out other folks in disciplines that were adjacent to his, but not the same thing. So he had a big, big heart and his ears were huge. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've been talking a little about um, how you receive this music, right? Mm. Like, mm. um how do you prepare yourself for, um, you know, to be open enough to, to really experience it properly? Um, and that raises a, a fun little thing. I mentioned uh, 
around the office that we were going to be talking about this release. And a, a friend and colleague of ours, John Newcott, said, wait a minute, what was the date of that concert? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and he said, who was on that? And I told him and he said, you know what? I was there. That's amazing. So That's amazing. I thought it might be fun to check in with our friend John Newcott mm-hmm. and get the perspective of uh, somebody, you know, sitting in one of those seats on that November night. So uh, why don't we hear another little music window from that, that evening? And then when we come back, we will be in the house with John Newcott, 1973. Right on. John Newcott from WBGO has uh, joined the building to talk about Cecil Taylor and a very special concert that uh, is seeing the light of day in its entirety. Welcome, John, to Jazz United, my man. Thanks so much, Greg and Nate. Nice to see you, hear you. (laughs) So, John, we want to put ourselves and our audience in the room uh, on November 4th, 1973. So if we're sitting next to you, tell us, tell us who you are in that moment. How old are you? What are you wearing? What's the vibe? So, um, so I was 20 years old. Um, at the time I was living in Houston, Texas and attending college at the university of Houston. While I was at college, I was, I would come back a couple of times a year and just hit the clubs. I mean, this was the, around the same period when I was going down to studio Rivby and, seeing Mm. Dave Holland and Barry Alchul and Sam, you know, being greeted at the door by B and, you know, that sort of thing. So it was, so it was really in my wheelhouse. And, and when I heard about this concert, there was no way I was going to miss it. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, this follows this, this hiatus from public performing, you know, while Cecil was teaching at Antioch and, and uh, up in Madison. And so I wonder because there's not a whole lot of press that I was able to dig up. Um, you know, there wasn't like a big preview feature in the times or anything. Um, and so I wonder how much you remember about the, the sort of preliminary excitement or hype around this return. For me personally, it was just, I, I was like thrilled out of my gourd. I mean, it was, it was an amazing thing. Um, and you know, the one thing, that really strikes me about that particular concert was a, it was one of the most intense concerts I've ever seen. I mean, it was, it was sort of like, um, you know, if you think of those old, uh, is it live or Memorex commercials and the guy sitting in the chair and he's being (laughs) like blown back from the moment they hit, it was at that level and kept rising. So, um, so the, so the energy in the room was palpable. I would say electric in the sense that I do recall certain moments 
when I closed my eyes and actually saw like sparks. Um, It was, it was really, it was that kind of an experience. And of course, seeing the interplay between the group, it wasn't just about Cecil. Of course, at first you're just drawn like a magnet to Cecil and you're just watching him, but it was really the interplay. And as a drummer, among many other things, it was also, if I may steal my own phrase, a light bulb moment for me uh, <laughs> because it was my first exposure to Andrew Surreal and changed my life forever. And then I got really lucky much later on in my career in the recording industry and got to work with Andrew on a bunch of different projects and stuff. But so that was a, it was a really seminal moment for me personally and mm-hmm. as a musician and, and as a listener. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in, and this is an unfair question because it was 50 years ago, but if you can remember what the crowd was like, a lot of times when I see music in larger venues, there's a certain percentage of, I'll call them scene makers. And then there's the true school people who are there for that experience, for that artist. And Cecil demands a lot from his audiences, I feel. Um, And he deserves that. Tell me what was the crowd like? What was it like to be a member of that audience? Well, you know, I'm not sure that I was qualified to be part of that crowd, but to your point, and you've just very accurately described what the crowd was. I mean, just Hmm. envision 1973, Greenwich Village, you know, all the hipsters, all the, you know, all, all the people in the know and the intelligentsia and everybody, and they were all there. I mean, that crowd was so, it was not, you know, in the parlance of what we all sadly experience these days with music, it wasn't, it wasn't a tourist crowd. Let's put it that way. I mean, it was really, you know, the true acolytes were there in force. And, and that's what I remember so distinctly about the, uh, uh, about the concert. So thanks for bringing that up, Greg, because it really was, it was being part of something that everybody in that room knew was like a truly magical and historical moment. Mm-hmm. Um, John, if you don't mind, we're, we're going to talk just a little bit about how this became a, a recording. You know, the time at which uh, this this concert was being put together, the, the person who organized it, a guy named David Laura, um, he, you know, he had some sense of the of the momentousness of this. And he said, all right, well, we should record this. But, you know, it was kind of a DIY proposition. So, you know, he wasn't going to go to you know, your Rudy Van Gelders, uh, you know, what he did was he, he went to WKCR, Columbia Student Radio, and, and he said, hey, uh, does anybody here want to record this Cecil Taylor concert? Um, and there was a student there who had engineered a few things at the station by the name of Fred Siebert. And Fred was like, oh, sure, I'll, I'll do it. Um, Fred didn't have the equipment, but he knew somebody who had some uh, some Newman microphones that had fallen off the back of a truck, shall we say? Uh, and so, so, so Fred went to town hall and and he set set up his microphones and he recorded this concert. 
Um, and as we've said, um, the second half of the concert was released as spring of two blue Jays. And the first half was just, you know, it was almost an hour and a half. It was unreleasable. And it was really during this uh, pandemic time that Fred Sieber took a look at some of his, you know, archives. And he, he said, you know what, maybe it's time to blow the dust off of this, uh, this, this box here that says Cecil Taylor, 1973. Um, and so he has taken it upon himself to, you know, to do a digital transfer and a, and a remastering and put this out digitally. Um, so there is a physical booklet, but there is no physical, um, there's no, there's no LP, there's no CD. It's, this is a digital release. Um, and it's an interesting move, but, uh, and I should note, by the way, Fred Siebert went on to some interesting things. One of the things that he did after his uh, Columbia University days, uh, he became one of the co-founders of a little thing called MTV. Um, and he was the first creative director there. Uh, and then subsequently, you know, got into television. He was, you know, president of Hanna-Barbera cartoons and uh, did stuff for Nickelodeon and the Cartoon Network. Uh, so, uh, it's interesting how these these paths wind and twist. But here he is revisiting this this moment from his undergraduate years. You know, he was you know roughly the same age you were, John, uh, mm -hmm. in the audience when yeah. he made this recording. Um, and now uh, we have him to thank for you know for this music finally being made. thing that I'd like to add, which is, is which is really important and speaks to place and time. Um, there was a merch table at that concert and there was a t-shirt and I bought it and I wore it proudly like a badge <laughs> of honor for decades <laughs> and people would stop me and go, what? You saw Cecil Taylor at town hall? Like, what is that? Um, and my recollection is very foggy as to exactly what happened to it. I think it may have just deteriorated from sheer use, but I have been crestfallen for decades now that I no longer have that artifact. I mean, boy, what would I give to have mm. that T-shirt back? But um, but it it so it was something that sort of filtered into my life and continued for quite some time after the actual event. So, well, that's in direct you know lineage of 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 Cecil. Um, I was on YouTube yesterday, I think, and he gave an interview maybe two years after this show uh, up in Boston, and he was just talking about the community's responsibility to protect and revere the cultural growth of the art. So you were doing that. Um, we're trying to do that. And I think it's a really stark reminder of someone who gave so much. We've got to make a space for that and hope to increase the audience for him. Also more merch. Yeah. <laughs> Come on people. Yeah. The, the jazz, the jazz, I've said it before. The jazz world needs to, needs to, come around and realize the importance of merch. 
Cecil knew. Mm-hmm. Let's let's pivot to a little segment we like to call "This I Dig." This is, of course, in in deference to the great tenor saxophonist Hank Mobley, um, and it's just what it sounds like. These are are things that we have been digging, and I think uh, the the first pick goes to our guest this week. So, John, what have you been digging? You know, there's nothing that I'm listening to like right this minute, but there are things that I'm extremely eager to hear which would be my picks one is the emmanuel wilkins album and the other is the new brad meldow so so i haven't heard them yet i haven't done a a deep dive into them but those are the two things that are most prominent on my radar right on so that is a can't wait to dig from john exactly how about you greg right on well uh Maybe it's a little late to the party, but uh, speaking of uh, microphones and things falling off of the truck, I've been digging on the Sopranos uh, for the first time, and uh, I, I really dig this thing. I can't believe it's taken me you know, 15 years to really plug in, but uh, James Gandolfini is, um, I guess I should say the late James Gandolfini, is a master actor. Um, and I love the fact that just like Cecil Taylor's music, the end of the majority of these episodes, it's just over. It's not a neat bow. It's not a neat button on the thing. Yeah. And you have to kind of use your imagination between the end of an episode and the beginning of another one to fill in the space. But somehow it all makes sense. So Sopranos. Nice. You know, I know that uh, the Sopranos have been a, a big pandemic uh, project for a lot of people. Um and, uh, and it's interesting, Greg, that that it wasn't like in the winter of 2020 that you that you turned. Right. Uh, but but here we are. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to revisit that show myself. Um, all right. Well, I'll close it up with uh, something that's actually as we uh, as we drop this podcast, uh, this is brand new in the world. Um, this is a documentary film titled Ronnie's. And this is um, all about Ronnie Scott's, the legendary London jazz club, um, but also about the the person who who gave the the joint its name, um, the the actual musician Ronnie Scott. Um, and uh, it's a film that uh, that cuts a wide swath. You know, it's it it talks about all of the jazz musicians who made Ronnie Scott's their home. People like Buddy Rich and um, Roland Kirk. Um, it includes some of the, I, I think, the very final recording by Jimi Hendrix. Wow. Um, <clears throat> so there's a lot of history there, and, and this is a club that you know has endured. It's still, it's still there. I hope to make my pilgrimage sometime fairly soon. Um, but yeah, this this film really brings it to life. So Ronnie's out now, folks. Uh, we've had a ball here talking about uh, Cecil Taylor. With uh, John Newcott, of course, yours truly here, and Nate Chinen. We want to urge you, if you don't already, though, subscribe to us, folks. Leave us a five-star review if you can. Tell your friends about us. Again, we welcome all of you that have come to us uh, over the last few episodes. This one was fun to make, and we've got some more heat for you in the weeks to come. This is Jazz United. 
We also want to mention that we're a product of WBGO Studios. That means that you are our lifeblood. We can't make a move without you folks. So if you want to give, if you need to give, if you are not yet a WBGO member, consider becoming one. Go to wbgo.org support and give your tax-deductible contribution to ensure that we can do cool things just like this. Again, for Nate Chenin and John Newcott, my name is Greg Bryant. This is Jazz United. Our producer is Trevor Smith. Our theme song is United, written by Newark's own Wayne Shorter, performed by Newark's own Woody Shaw. We'll see you again next time. Take care. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org/studios.